Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of the art of strategy by Avanish K. Dixit and Barry J. Nailbuff, a game theorist's guide to success in business and life. <laughs> should have practiced that before we got <laughs> yeah. into I'm glad I didn't have to read those because I don't think I would have done much better. But game theory, uh, it's an important part about society. This book is all about strategic behavior. Now, all of us are actually strategists, whether we realize or not and whether we like it or not. And if you're going to be a strategist, you may as well be a good one rather than a bad one. So, this book is all about those simple skills that you can take that will help you improve your uh, strategic thinking and your strategic behavior. If you think about work life, social life, almost everything is a constant stream of decisions, what career to follow, how to manage a business, who to marry, how to bring up children, whether to run for president, things like that. They're just some ex- examples where having some kind of strategic intelligence or strategic IQ, just made up that term. <laughs> SQ, strategic question. Well, that's a good, that's a good one. It. Well, it's going to have a lot of leverage about where you go in life because in every circumstances, you're not operating in a vacuum. You're operating with other players Mm. or other people who are also playing this game. So, you need to adopt a different strategy to suit the occasion that you're in. That's it. It's the difference between a lumberjack and a general. A lumberjack, they go out, they decide, hey, I'm going to chop this tree down. The tree doesn't fight back. The wood just doesn't do anything. Uh, The environment is neutral. So, the only thing that matters is the decisions of the lumberjack, where to strike, how hard to strike. But contrast that to the army general. If you're going into war, you've got to realize that whilst you're making decisions, the other, the enemy, they're making their own decisions as well. So, it's a constantly evolving game where you've got to not only consider what's best for you, but what's best for them as well. And I think a lot of people out there are probably playing a lot of games like a lumberjack, Mm. not realizing that they should be playing games like a general. They might be just doing something and chopping something, not really thinking about the reaction of other people. So, game theory is a part of social science that looks a whole wide range of different games from chess, child rearing, tennis, takeovers, advertising, arms control, uh, climate change, war, nuclear arms, everything like that because almost every aspect of life can be thought of as a game. Now, each game requires their own skills. Obviously, if you're playing basketball, you need to know how to shoot. If you're being a lawyer, you need to have a fair knowledge of precedent. If you're playing poker, you need to have a good poker face. They're all the specific skills, but every game then also involves these other overarching skills, which is strategic thinking. So, whatever game you're playing, you may as well improve your skills in strategic thinking. Now, let's just look at a few different examples here. Uh, Let's say you're going on the, what's the Melbourne sailboat race? The Sydney to Hobart. Sydney to, (laughs) not even Melbourne. (laughs) The Sydney to Hobart sailboat race right some people would go into a race like that thinking right we're going to do absolutely the best we possibly can like the lumberjack and use the wind to our advantage but looking at this like a general you can have a totally different approach if you actually get into the lead in front of everybody else doing what you think is best is actually the least Mm -hmm. superior strategy for giving you the big w Instead, and a lot of our sailboats have figured this out by now, they adopt the follow the leader strategy. No, they don't. They go the opposite of follow the leader. So oh, what fuck. they <laughs> no, so what they actually do is uh, they actually the leader follows the chaser. So mm. if uh, so, say you've got two sailboats, they're both sailing one direction. The leader, they've got their thirty second advantage. If the 
boat that's in the second place tacks, they change direction because they think, oh, the wind's going to be coming from a different angle. We may as well change and make the most of it. The leader actually copies the second place boat because the thing is, if they were both doing two different strategies, one could win and one could lose, they're sort of taking the risk. But if they think, well, whatever the second boat does, we're going to do the same thing. Both boats are going to be equally impacted whether that's right or wrong. And in the end, the leader stays Mm. the leader. And the context could change throughout the race, right? If the mm. person who's coming third is doing a risky strategy because then uh, for them, they might as well take the riskiest approach, then all of a sudden the person who's winning is going to change their game based mm. on what the other players are doing in that moment. I think a similar one is footy tipping. So this is a very popular thing to do in Australia. I'm not sure about other countries. Yeah, I'm sure there is, yeah. But in the footy, you pick who you think is going to win every week and then you put in money at the start of the year and at the very end, the winner takes home the cake and the couple of hundred bucks or whatever it might be. Yeah, and so with uh, footy tipping, I guess, for me anyway, I think my... I always got this... I've never won a bloody footy tipping competition, but Mm. in my mind, I feel like you go... Whoever wins the first two weeks is pretty much going to win even though there's going to be 20 more weeks ahead of that whoever's in the lead at the start is in the best position because if you're winning you can just pick the favorites if you're mm. behind you got to take a couple of risks you got to take a pick a couple of the uh the underdogs to try to hope to make up that lead so depending on where you are in the race changes your strategy entirely at the start if you're looking to get out on top you need to have a strategy that is different to everyone else. So picking the favorites each week probably isn't the best thing to do at the very start. You need a decent amount of risk to make you stand out, but not enough risk where you're just going to go down to the bottom. But then toward the end of the season, if you do find yourself on top, perhaps the same strategy as sailboat racing is going to be the most superior. If you were to know what everyone else is picking, which I guess you do through the favorites, you're better off picking the safe Mm. option towards the end because that's most likely going to keep your lead. Yeah, and I've got an interesting one even from just a couple of weeks ago when the uh, AFL season wrapped up that uh, my mate uh, Linford, he was in the lead. Actually, no, him and the second and third place, they all had the exact same tips going into the last game, but he was on top because he had the best margin throughout Mm. the year. And so he had the thought, okay, so do I pick the favorite in this game or do I pick the underdog? If he picks the favorite, obviously, if he gets the win, he's going to win. Uh, but if he loses and the underdog wins, then he could have lost because he was on the same amount of tips. So what he did, he thought, okay, well, what are the second and third going to do? The second and third, they know that they need to take a risk to try to win to get on top of him. So he thought, okay, they're going to pick the underdog. So mm-hmm. if I pick the underdog, it's almost like the, the sailing boat analogy. So the second place picks the underdog. So he thinks if I pick the underdog, I just mm-hmm. win as well. Man, my brain's hurting after that <laughs> one. But it's true. You can do different iterations to think what they're going to do. So you do it, you know. Yeah. And- the risk was if they... They thought, okay, if he thinks that we're going to think that we're going to pick the underdog, <laughs> then we should pick the favorite. But yeah. he, he went one step further than them in the, in the game theory thinking. Another context we can apply this to is the financial markets. And this was advice in The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham. And it's the question I think that a lot of people, especially when they start stock trading, don't ask themselves. Mm. If I'm looking to buy and they're looking to sell, what makes me think that I know more than the other person? Right, like a lot of people just think, oh, I'm just going to buy a stock like a lumberjack. But in this in this way, you got to think about it as a general. What's the other person looking to do if they're mm. selling? Am I the sucker in this case? If it's a zero sum game and one person wins and the other person loses, you can't just think, hey, I've got this awesome idea, I should buy this stock. Because by the very nature, if you're buying, it means somebody else is selling. So they're thinking, obviously, something completely different to you, or a totally different type of game we've got here. Uh, which is an actual war, but obviously a war is a beautiful analogy to use in a lot of different ways in life. 
But uh, in 1504, there was a 19-year-old Spaniard named Hernan Cortez. He just landed in Mexico. He had a team of about 500 people, and they needed to conquer a country of 500,000. Now, this ambitious 19-year-old was a bit of a wild man, and the rest of his army were thinking, look, we do not want to go to war with 500,000 people. That's just the dumbest <laughs> thing in the world. Now, the leader, Hernan, he knew this was, was going through their mind. They were all looking at the boats, dreaming of going home to their partners and having some cooked chooks and wine or whatever they had back then. So, what he did, he went out and just burnt all the boats. <laughs> so, in this game, all these people, their brain went from going home and the only way out of this was actually conquering Mexico, which they did. So, it turns out that uh, Hernan Cortez... Good, some good game theory. Great strategy and great game theory. And it's like a, it's like a pretty well-known thing now, the burn the boat strategy. You've got to realize that, okay, you've got two options. You can either fight or you can run. And you're always going to be thinking in the back of your mind, if things aren't going so well, if your mate next to you just gets his neck slashed, you think, okay, I'm going to run away, I'm going to jump on the boat. But Cortez has completely closed off that option. He said, there's no more option to run. The only thing we can do is fight. So, that's a few fun little games. In this episode, we're going to look at a few different types uh, specifically. First, we're going to look at sequential, where one player makes a move and then the opponent makes one in response. Then you make a move back, something like chess or checkers. We're going to also look at simultaneous games and specifically the case of the prisoner's dilemma tale and different ways we can solve this problem. And then finally, we're going to look at real life examples where you can try and win games against yourself, whether it might be improving habits or anything like that, but also then with others and all the different strategies you can have to win in games. So we're going to split up the different types of games into two groups here. You've either got the sequential move games or the simultaneous move games. So you've got the simultaneous, which is where both people, both players act at the same time. But we're going to start with the sequential move, which is where you take turns. So as you said, the checkers or chess, or if you think about tennis, you hit it and then your opponent hits it. So each time you're taking in turns. There's a comic strip here called It's Your Move, Charlie Brown. And uh, it's a recurring theme that happens every single year where you got Lucy here, she's holding a football on the ground and saying to Charlie, hey, Charlie, come and kick this ball, mate. Come over and just kick it. And Charlie's like, fuck, last year you keep moving the ball. I try to kick it and I just slip over and land on my ass. But Lucy's like, no, 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 this time, Charlie, I'm not going to do it this time. I'm just going to hold the ball and I'm just going to let you just follow through and kick it. And then what does Charlie do? He runs up. He goes to kick the ball with all his might and then Lucy at the last second moves it. Charlie slips over again and falls over and in this sense loses the game. So this is a sequential move game where each player got a chance to take turns. So I guess the, the best way to represent a sequential move game is to draw out like a little tree diagram. So first, Charlie gets the first move. His options is he can either accept the invitation to kick the ball or he can decline the invitation to kick the ball. So if he declines, there's no real move for Lucy to make. But if he accepts, then now it's Lucy's turn. She's got two options as well. She can either leave the ball there and allow Charlie to kick it, or she can remove the ball at the last second and see him fall flat on his ass. So when Charlie's deciding whether or not to accept the invitation, Lucy's action lies in the future. So he should know that out of the two outcomes, Lucy prefers Charlie to go and kick the ball and she can just pull it away quickly. So then he just lands on his ass. So the rule or the way to solve these sequential move games 
is you have to go to the very end of the tree. So, you've got to think at the very end, which is my opponent going to prefer? What's their best move at the very end? So, in this case, Lucy's best move was to pull the ball away because she gets some kind of sick and twisted pleasure mm. out of seeing Charlie fall over. He should realize that, hey, actually, if I go to the end, she's actually not going to let me kick this ball. Mm. So, by taking that and realizing that uh, he's going to lose by if he chooses to kick the ball because she's going to pull it away, his option should be then, okay, I'm actually going to decline this invitation. So what Charlie did wrong was he just looked at the start. He said, okay, I can kick the ball or I can leave the ball. And he thought, oh, it's going to be fun to kick this ball. But what you need to do is you need to go to the very end first. So you start at the end and work your way back. Yeah, by this stage, he should know that Lucy's a sick and twisted person and use that information to make the optimal decision at the very start. So we've got a different example here and it's called the ultimatum game. It's a classic psychological experiment and it's carried out with all sorts of different variations. But the simplest version, you got two people. First, you got the proposer and then you got the responder. So there's a hundred bucks if you divide it up. But person A, the proposer, that's the person who gets to choose how it is split up. Then person B either accepts it or rejects it. So, if person B accepts it, both parties get whatever A said. If they reject it, both parties get nothing. So, the obvious one is most people just think, okay, well, let's just go 50-50. So, person A says, I'll give you 50, I'll keep 50. And then in most cases, person B is going to say, that sounds like a phenomenal deal to me. I'll accept it. Both parties win. But then if person A thinks a little bit deeper, if they think, okay, well, whatever I say, B is going to decide if they want it or not. So, maybe if I do like 60-40, I keep 60, they get 40. Surely, 40 is better than them rejecting it. If they reject it, they get zero. If they accept it, they get 40 bucks. And if you continue this thinking a little bit further, pure rationality would say, hey, if I give myself 99 and give them one, they should accept it because one is better than zero. Mm -hmm. So, if you think in, in that first step, person A could go as far as a 99 to one split. Which a lot of people do. But in this case, it's neglecting one big element and that is human nature. If you're a responder, put yourself in those shoes, you've got the proposer taking 99 bucks and just giving you a dollar, there's probably a bit of, bit of F you in you and <laughs> all right, lose, lose, I'm yeah. going home with zero because you're such a greedy, <laughs> greedy bastard. So, proposer should take that into consideration, the human nature element and go, all right, I know it's rational for that person to take a dollar, but what is a reasonable amount that that person's not going to choose lose-lose in this situation and consider my proposal reasonable enough? And so, what a whole bunch of different researchers, a whole bunch of different people have tried this game in different variations. The magic number, it seems to fall, is around 80-20. So, most people they found actually well, they found that half the people reject anything less than 20%. So, if you're offering 80 bucks for yourself and 20 for them, half the people are going to reject that. So, what we need to do is, whilst pure game theory says, okay, if, if I give them one, they should accept it. The human nature element we've got to consider as well and realize that, hey, if I'm giving them, if I'm giving them less than 20 bucks, they're probably going to reject it. So, maybe something like a, a 75-25, 70-30, maybe that's going to be the best way that maximizes my sort of pure game theory thinking, but also takes into consideration their human nature. Got a real life example that has popped up in my head with uh, real consequences. So, in Australia, you've got the Murray-Darling Basin. So, upstream, you've got the people who own all the water and they can use it to grow their own agricultural products or whatever it might be. Then toward the bottom, it, the water flows all the way down to Adelaide and they kind of get the dregs. <laughs> so, I think this does relate to real economic policy 
because those in Queensland, it's not a 50-50 split and equally distributed. The people at the very start get the lion's share, but they don't get the whole lot. They give enough that's reasonable to those at the bottom. So I guess that's a translation of the proposal responder. Do you think that's a good translation? I think it's a good translation because if, if Queensland said we're taking it all, then South Australia, they'd kick up a stink and say no no bloody way, we've, we've got to fight this. But if uh, if it's reasonable, you know, 70-30, then, then South Australia, they're probably happy with that and they'll let it slip and they'll, they'll just accept it. So basically, in summary, if you've got these uh, sequential move gains where you take it in turns, the, uh, should we call them the dumb person? The, yeah. the person who doesn't know game theory, they're just going to think, what's my best move right now? Lumberjack. At, we'll call the, it the lumberjack. <laughs> the, yeah. That's a good one, yeah. So the lumberjack is just thinking, okay, what's the best thing should I do right now? And deciding based on that, the army general, they're thinking, hang on, whatever I do, the other person's going to take their turn next. So you've got to go to the very end and think, what's the best outcome for the other person and work your way back to then decide what's your best move. What do two gas stations going into fierce price wars or the overexploitation and collapse of fisheries or global warming or de-escalation of nuclear arms around the world, all of these things are different cases or instances of the prisoner's dilemma? So the classic prisoner's dilemma is uh, where you've got two people there suspected of committing a crime. I don't know, maybe they were caught on camera shoplifting but they're also expected of injuring someone on the in a bit of a hit and run on the, on the getaway car and police catch these two blokes I'm, I'm assuming they're blokes it sounds like a bloke thing to do um, <laughs> and they uh, interrogate them separately so they put them in separate rooms and they say hey uh, we've caught you on camera with this shoplifting and we've also seen this uh, this person that you ran over the old the old grandma you ran over on the way out and uh, you you're in some serious trouble mate and uh, you've got a you've got an important decision here. They say, you've got a choice here. We know you've done it. So if you just confess to us, we're willing to let you off easy with a reduced sentence. So now you've got these two people, uh, these two different prisoners. They're in separate rooms. This is a simultaneous move game, as in they can't decide their actions based on what the other person is doing. They both got to make the decision at the same time with no knowledge of the other party. So we can't do our tree diagram anymore. We actually have to do something a little different here. So what you need to do is write out all the different outcomes based on the decisions that people are making simultaneously so for example both prisoners they could both lie and just which is best for both of them that means they both get to pay a little bit serve say one year in jail each but then they go out and scot-free but there's another scenario where one person lies and then the other person confesses so the person who confesses they go off completely scot-free whereas the person they rat on goes to jail for 10 years with a huge consequence. But then there's a third option where they both confess. They both say, no, the other person did it. And then in that case, they both go to jail for five years' time. Okay, so as we said, we can't do this like a tree diagram because they both happen at the same time. So what we need to do is each person needs to think about the other person's best case scenario depending on what move they make. So say if person B lies, so let's assume person B is going to lie, it's better in that case for person A to confess because if B is lie, they'll get one year, but if they confess, they get zero. They throw their mate under the bus in for 10 years and they get off scot-free. So they've saved themselves a year there. 
also then, if B confesses, it's also better for A to confess. Because if B confesses but A lies, A's getting thrown in the slammer for 10 years. If they both confess, he's only going in for five. So what we've got here is A has got a dominant strategy to confess. So no, no matter what B does, A is always going to be better off by confessing. And unfortunately for B, it works the exact same the other way. B is always going to be better off confessing depending on whatever A does. So in this case, if both people are aware of uh, the other person's dominant strategy, both people are going to confess and they're both going to cop their five years each. So the prisoner's dilemma situation is where all parties are led to an action that is against all of their mutual interests and they're not playing a game where they could all benefit if they were working on the same team with a different strategy. Yeah, if they both work together and said, hey, let's just both keep quiet here, we'll only get a year each, we'll be fine, then obviously that's the best case scenario. But because there's a little uncertainty, they don't know what the other person's going to do, and they could cop 10 years, they think, okay, well, it's better to just confess, we're both worse off than if we had to work together, but I'm covering my own ass, basically. So this happens a lot in the real world. So say if you got two gas stations, they're really close to each other, basically on the same corner, which might be a bit difficult. But <laughs> same, same, same street maybe. <laughs> you know, you're driving down the highway and you've got no one else to choose but these two gas stations. Now, if they were to work together and collude, they could just raise their prices mm. up and just get a serious juicy profit on top of it if they were able to work together. Mm. So rather than charging a fair price of a dollar, they collude to make it a dollar ten. And both gas stations will get roughly the same amount of equal sales and it's all happy days. But then if one gas station undercut the other and they went a little bit lower and the other person went high, then they take all the business and all the profits mm. and then win. But then the other gas station sees them do it and go, no, hell, hell, to hell with you. We're going to lower it as well. Then all of a sudden, they're on a race to the bottom to charge the cheapest possible amount. Or another example, if you think uh, pretty topical at the moment, I think next week's the US election. So, uh, uh, pretty topical. The the idea here is that, say, you know, on a bell curve, roughly you've got 25% of people on the left, 25% of people on the right, and then you've got 50% of people in the middle. If you... If the left side picks left and the right side picks right, you're going to get all of the left and all of the right and you're going to split up the middle. And so you're getting somewhere around 50-50 depending on who does it better. But then if you think, hey, if they're going to the right, the left side, if they move to the center, they can capture that whole 50% of people in the center plus their original 25 on the left. So they end up winning 75-25. But of course, if people understand game theory, they realize that, hey, there's this risk that if they go to the center, I'm going to lose. Both sides end up going for the center and ignoring their own sort of core values. And now they've still got to now fight it out to try and slice up that middle 50% to see who wins. Mm -hmm. Another context of the prisoner's dilemma is dealing with global warming. So if you think about it, every country in the world benefits if they put a price on carbon and clean up the atmosphere. But nobody gets a private benefit from reducing carbon emissions. So let's say you've got 100 different countries, they go to the Paris Agreements and they all say, yep, we're going to clean up our carbon dioxide, put a price on carbon and in doing so, they're probably less competitive in trade and things like that because they're putting an extra cost that other countries aren't doing. But then say if one country decides to freeload, right, and they go, we're going to say we're doing this but we're not really going to put a price on carbon because we want to be extra competitive, they're going to benefit more mm. than the other 99 countries They've got an economic advantage. Then all of a sudden, the other 99 countries, it's a race to the bottom again <laughs> and no one's taking any action on global warming. Another quick one is like if you think of the Cold War, USA versus Russia, they've got their nuclear weapons. Everybody's going to benefit if there are less nuclear weapons. But of course, 
no side wants to get rid of their nuclear weapons altogether because there's always a risk that the other side doesn't follow suit and they're going to keep their nuclear weapons. And so you don't want to have that risk on your hands. So in the end, everyone keeps their nuclear weapons and everyone loses. So in all these games, everybody would win if they just chose the one strategy. So there are solutions to solving this in terms of, I guess, regulating the game so everybody can win. And there's a few different ways you can do this. The first is to detect cheating. So say in price wars, airlines do this actually. They're constantly automatically monitoring the other company's fares. And if they go down and do a race to the bottom, they know straight away that this person's cheating and then they can respond with their price change straight away. Another one is uh, if you think back to those two prisoners, if you think that uh, you've got prisoner A, prisoner B, if one confesses and the other lies to try to keep a bit of solidarity, one gets out for zero years, one's stuck in the slammer for 10, uh, there needs to be some kind of punishment for this. So if, say, if they were part of a gang, the person who gets out, that the, the dogged the other person, that narked, that, uh, that wailed, that snitched, mm. snitches get stitches, the gang comes along and says, well, hang on, you've, you've totally screwed everybody over here, so we're going to take out a bit of punishment on you. Well, that explains a lot of the culture within gangs to look down so low or poorly on people who rat to the police mm. and they will get shot because amongst all the different gangs... If the cost of writing to police is uh, a bullet in the brain, then that means every single gang in society is going to do better because less people are going to go to jail. So I think the gangs of out of every game have probably figured out the prison <laughs> dilemma the best. Yeah, right? it's good. Well, that that simple thing: snitches get stitches. If you know that uh, in the short term, if you uh, confess and throw your mate under the bus and get out of jail. Uh, that seems like a good thing, but if the gang knows uh, and thinks, hang on, we've got to punish anybody who rats it out, mm. they've worked out the perfect game theory. Well, you could argue that the Paris agreements really lacked in this area of solving the prisoner's dilemma. From what I understand, there's not a hell of a lot of a punishment for the countries who do not put a price on carbon or do any action on climate change. And because of that, there's more upside for them to take the economic advantage and stick to the status quo. Now, there's an important thing that we need to consider when we're catching cheaters and punishing them is the size of the punishment. How harsh should it be? It needs to obviously be strong enough to deter the cheating. If you think of the uh, the two petrol stations, if one undercuts the other and the punishment is they get eggs, their <laughs> window gets egged, it's probably not enough to deter you because you'd rather just make that quick profit instead. Uh, and probably if you thought, if they said, hey, if you undercut us, we're going to bring a flamethrower and just blow up the whole thing. That's probably too extreme and not really believable. So you've got to find the sweet spot that actually is impactful but still believable. Okay, so we've looked at the two different types of games. If it's a sequential move games where people are taking turns, then you've got to look, use the tree method, look to the end, see what's the best move and work your way back to the start. Then if it's a simultaneous move game where both people act at the same time, you've got to work out what is their best move in every scenario I do to try to find is there a dominant strategy that is the obvious move for them. So now that we've got those two methods of working out games, let's have a look at some real world stuff. How can we apply game theory to the real world so that we can win some more of these games? In some games, you're playing against yourself and every time you make some kind of commitment or a New Year's resolution or something, you're strategizing against who you are now and the person you want to become. But a lot of people aren't the best strategists against themselves. Uh, for example, for all New Year's resolutions, CNN survey found that 30% are not kept in February and only one in five 
is on track six months later. So, 80% of people just aren't getting there. Okay. So, say if your news resolution is to wake up 30 minutes earlier and do 30 minutes of exercise in the morning, every single morning, you've got to do this. Uh, Every single morning is an opportunity. It's a new game. It's a new turn in the game where you either lose or you win. So, one way to make sure that you always win this game every single morning is to make some kind of commitment. Perhaps uh, setting that alarm, maybe having multiple alarms and an alarm every single minute. That's a good way to make this commitment to yourself that even if I miss the first one, I'm going to wake up one minute later. I'm going to force myself into sticking to this resolution. Now, you set the alarm the night before. So, that's the version of you that's just about to go to bed. Pretty easy to set the alarm. But you got to think the person you're playing against is that version of you who wakes up in the morning and thinking, shit, I just want to go back to sleep. I just want to hit snooze. <laughs> So, they're the two people who are playing this game. Now, the alarm clock, it's got snooze buttons, right? So, the person who wakes up can just hit snooze and then go back to sleep. But the person the night before has got first mover's advantage. Mm. So, you think, all right, in the morning, I know I'm going to hit snooze. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get, rather than use my alarm clock, I'm going to get my phone and put it on the other end of the room. Then you might think, all right, well, the person in the morning, they could wake up, grab the phone, hit turn off and then go back to bed. So, then you might do something else. You might put it outside of the room so you have to walk out a bit further Mm. or something like that. So, in each iteration of this game, you're playing against a future self for you to win and install this new habit of waking up 30 minutes earlier. So, making commitments with yourself is one way to beat yourself uh, in the longer-term game. If You you might be playing a game against others and sometimes a good strategy uh, is to make threats. It was like the uh, the classic threat of the snitches get stitches. That's an obvious threat that, hey, you're part of this gang. If you narc, if you snitch to the cops, uh, you're going to cop a few stitches. Yeah. That's a, that's a good threat. It's a good way to beat other people in the game. Yeah, you can use threats to win psychological games. I remember when I used to play football in juniors, I was uh, playing centre-half back and I was on the centre-half forward. And one of the strategies I used to adopt is I'll be very, very aggressive at the start. Rah, rah, a bit of a loser, but... Um, and I'd sometimes say if they push back or if you want to go, I'll meet you in the car park after the game. You know, like I'm a bit, some big dog who's this huge <laughs> brawler and fighter and everything like that. That used to work a lot. Until threat. The, I reckon they'd be shirking contests. Anytime the ball was the going near job. them and you were there, yeah. you'd be, uh, they'd be running the other I way. I was the big nut job. But it worked until the day it didn't when uh, three other people came up to me. <laughs> goes, they called my bluff and said, all right, let's do it now. Or, and then another time, people were actually were in the car park <laughs> to meet me after the game. So, they were actually tough nut jobs. I was just playing their nut job. And um, yeah, it worked until it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> As you say, threats can be very good until someone calls you bluff. Uh, an important element in making these threats is uh, an academic term they call brinkmanship. So, brinkmanship is the art, I guess, or the strategy of finding the right level of threat. As we said, it can't be too extreme that you get the other team offside, uh, but it needs to also be extreme enough that it actually is taken as a serious threat. And this is going to happen when labor unions go on strike. So, they're not going to go on strike for 100 days. Mm. That's probably just a bit too much. They want to go on strike the minimum amount of time to put in enough pain to the bosses for them to give the pay rise. Another example is like the game of chicken. You got two cars 100 meters apart uh, driving head on about to hit each other and the, the game of chicken, whoever's the chicken is going to swerve first. So, there's no threat in that point. There's always just a threat of, hey, I'm, I'm not going to swerve at all. Mm. Uh, but you could uh, slowly increase your level of um, 
your level of threat here. They say one example is just rip the steering wheel off and show them that you're throwing it out the window. So that's a good threat that you're definitely not going to swerve. Mm. A bit, bit of a, an issue if both of did that well, at the same yeah. time, wouldn't it? <laughs> Big issue. I guess you got the break. So you got use of threats. Another thing you can use is reputation. So back to our gang members and a lot of them, the ones who are a bit more seasoned, they've got a reputation, right? They just walk into the bar and everyone's like, shit, who are them? Let's not F with them. And they could just give you a look and you're running away scared. But the way gangs build this reputation is a lot of them, they need to commit acts of violence at the very start of their their career mm. to establish that reputation. Then after a while, they don't really have to commit any violent acts whatsoever because they've done that. People think they're that type of person. Mm. And then they're just using their reputation as their weapon for certain things. Yeah, you normally see on those like prison shows that the, the new bloke comes into the yard and goes straight for the biggest guy to show that they're the, they're the wild person that's going to go and fight. Another way to build reputation is across multiple games. I was trying to think of one on the fly. You might be able to help with this. But say like you're a poker player that has played a number of tournaments. You can build a reputation for either being the, the bloke who always goes all in very regularly or the bloke who every time they go all in, they've got the nuts. Or mm. You can build some kind of reputation over time that is the perfect then game theory strategy to beat other players. Well, I think a good example across multiple games is different jobs you might have. Like you might just... The day you put in the resignation, give the big F you to the boss <laughs> and uh, just stroll on out with a serious arrogance. But that's just one game. Realizing that you're actually playing your career is over multiple, multiple games and your reputation from job to job is going to matter. So in that context, all your previous games do count to your current reputation and count of how your current game is being played. Again, as you said before, that the... Uh War is always a good analogy for games. Uh, we've got another one here of how some armies can deal with like enforcing teamwork and enforcing that everybody works together. So if everyone gets in a line and they all charge forwards towards the um, towards the enemy, that's uh, that's the best thing for everyone. But if someone thinks, "Oh, I'm not so sure about this. I think we're about to get slaughtered here," and they back out, that's a bad thing. And if more and more people start backing out the whole army is cooked. So what some armies do uh, is that if anybody starts backing out, they have to shoot them. So that's a serious, pretty serious threat. And what's more so, if the bloke next to you backs out and you don't shoot him, then you're in line for getting shot as well. Mm, so here, so I think it's a little bit like the prison's dilemma, that case where the cost of not doing what's the best for the team is higher than not complying. Because I'd imagine if I'm running in one of those old school wars back in the 13th century or whatever with a sword, <laughs> yeah. how terrified would you be? You're on the front line, <laughs> like running with a sword, and like, like I don't even believe, in the, <laughs> don't even believe in the Crusades. And you're running toward an enemy, and they've got swords, and like, what hope have you got? But also, then, uh, if you think that the person next to you, if they start backing out. You might think, oh, I really want to let him go. I don't want to kill my own mate just because he backed out. But the risk then that the person next to you sees you not killing him and then mm. you're in for it, I'd say that's probably a good incentive to kill your, your best mate who's standing next to you. Okay, another thing in the context of trying to beat others is interpreting their information that they're giving you. So one game that we're all playing is against advertisers. And on YouTube, I don't know what my algorithm's thinking of me <laughs> at the moment that I can just buy any silver bullet that comes my way. <laughs> but I'm always getting tried to pitch these get-rich-quick schemes, uh, drop shipping on Amazon and then never work again and make a million bucks, all that kind of stuff. 
Now, the way I interpret that information originally is thinking, all right, if they were really crushing it on Amazon FBA, then why are they so mm. desperate to sell me this online course? So, I think that's bullshit. Mm. But then they know that I'm thinking that, the smart ones. So, they're, they know they're lacking credibility. So, what they do, some of them, is they go out and hire a jet for a weekend <laughs> and a Lambo and a huge mansion and then that's where they take the video. And then I'm thinking, hang on, if they're actually got that much cash surely they are crushing it so you know i've haven't been buying but i think a lot of people <laughs> would fail in that second iteration of the game and click yeah. forward and assume that this person's got a silver bullet which is going to be their ticket to riches yeah definitely and so in that second iteration that's like the classic you know ty lopez i'm here in my garage with my lamborghini and my seven bookshelves or whatever that was the famous one if he was just standing in front of a brick wall saying hey i'm the best i know so much stuff come buy from me Mm. it's not really that convincing but then i think it even goes uh, if you go one step further if everybody starts to realize that people are just hiring jets and paying beautiful women to come sit in their bikinis and they're saying hey i'm attracting all these people i've got so much money to all these people coming on my private jet if people then start to realize that that's what they're doing Mm. it almost goes the other way if you're trying too hard to flash your cash and trying to show everybody how much money you're making from whatever get rich quick scheme it is then people start to realize hang Mm. on this is a bit of a try hard i've seen this before yeah i think it goes in also writing linkedin profiles Mm. those ones who are over the top with all the stuff they've done and how good they are and all of that i think at some stage it might have worked but i think more powerful are the ones that are very small and succinct Mm. and i think the real top dogs are actually um doing that and the real top dogs are probably ones who don't even bother wasting time on linkedin (laughs) (laughs) so it's a real it's a real battle between i guess signaling and counter signaling so you might try to signal that you're the the world's foremost expert in innovative such and such if you use all of these fluffy adjectives you're trying to signal that you're awesome but as you say the more you try hard to inject these signals it actually becomes a bit of a counter signal and you become a bit of a try hard so that's the art of strategy Game theory is a lot of fun and I think the the main takeaway is to start playing like a general and not a lumberjack. Understand that you're not in a social vacuum. You've got to think about what are all the other opponents playing and, and what's their reaction going to be to your moves and what's your reaction going to be to their reaction to your moves and so forth. <laughs> and do a few iterations of that and I think when you train your brain in that way, you're going to get a better SQ, strategic <laughs> quotient, and be much better at strategy. Thank you.